Amen. All right. Let the goofiness begin. You know, they have all those jokes about the difference between the first and the second service. And not to put any pressure on you or nothing, but when I finished my talk at the end of the first service, there was a standing ovation, and they did rush the stage and carry me off on their shoulders. So I'm kidding. They didn't carry me off. Um, let me just get my, all my technology together. I'm trying to... Be mindful of your time. Um, if I do go long, just somebody just take your car keys and just jingle them, all right? Um, but the good news is, is there's not a clock talk, you know, ticking, right? With first service, there's all this pressure to get off the stage, but now it's like we got all day, right? So, And silence your phones if you have them, too. That's an important thing. Sometimes I forget. I'm always afraid. Um, I'm going to get a text or something. I started... Uh, following Jesus on Instagram, and boy, it's goofy, he got a selfie stick, and now it's all he does is post stuff, and it's annoying, <laughs> kidding as well, I'm getting a dry mouth now, I'm really nervous, but we read that passage at the beginning, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 13, which talks about the whole armor of God, and you know, it's, it's, it's again, it's one of those passages, we're going to deal with a couple of passages, that are real, real familiar with us. And um, but I, sometimes that's a risk, right? You know, it's like passage is so familiar that you, you lose, like, the weight of it, what it's saying. And, but I, I really wanted to kind of what I was saying, and we're going to touch on a bunch of different things, but to, to make that the point that we go back to, that, you know, having done all, stand. Um, having done all that you can to stand, and, um, you know, what I want, hopefully, when this is all said and done, to have been an, uh, be an encouragement to you, and also to kind of maybe give a warning for, so that you could be prepared, and uh, why do I want to say those things? Um, I don't know if any of you guys have noticed lately or not, but, you know, as a believer in this country... We have been extraordinarily blessed. I mean, even from the foundations of our earliest histories till now, uh, the values and the things that our culture held to be important and the values of a Christian were kind of, they really meshed together pretty well. But, and like I said, I don't know if anybody else has kind of noticed this, but things are changing, it seems to be. Um, our culture used to not only tolerate Christianity, but it was pretty much in lockstep. And now the values that we share really aren't the same values that our culture shares. And, you know, you don't have to look real far, just look on the news or read the headlines, and it's, you know, it's readily apparent. Um, in the changing times that we live in are what I want to kind of talk about, and what do we do? Um, and it seems like there's been this gradual paradigm shift uh, in values and a paradigm shift in the things that our culture holds to be important and the things that what a believer believes to be true. And, and this paradigm shift is really evident in the realm of morality and the culture has really kind of come to this place where moral relativism 
is like the supreme virtue. And, and what I mean by that when I say moral relativism, within our society and our culture, there's like, there's like this unspoken contract that's out there that says, you don't tell me what I'm doing is wrong. I won't tell you what you're doing is wrong. And we're just going to leave it at that. And so that's kind of what I mean by moral relativism. And it's an unspoken contract, and it's all kind of thrown out there and put under this guise of, of tolerance, right? Um, and if you speak out and you break that contract and you say, hey, I don't think what you do, it's like, hey, you're intolerant. Hey, you're a bigot. Um, and it's a, the problem that we face as Christians is we can't keep that contract. Not if we're going to be faithful and true to God's message and His Word. We can't keep it. And so we're really kind of, uh, we're, 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 we're behind the eight ball, as it were. Um, and why is that? Because it's like we believe, as Christians, we believe, right, that this is God's world. And that God does have some things to say about how we believe and or how we live our lives and how we interact with each other. Even in the realm of, of like human sexuality, God has things to say that this is the proper use of this gift of sexuality and these are improper uses of this gift and this is just how things are. And So you can see that as a believer we get ourselves into trouble because we can't keep that contract. Um, and what happens is what we find is that when a Christian particularly fails and doesn't keep that contract, the society and our culture is at an ever-increasing rate punishing. And and um, second part of the problem is that it's impossible for us, not just as Christians, but for as a human being, it, it is impossible for us to uh, not discriminate. Um, there's been this gradual shift over time of uh, a redefining of of word and the name of the, that word is discrimination um, the classical definition of that word has always been in the past that uh, the, the definition of, dis of discrimination is that for a person to to make a distinction and then to act upon that distinction. That's the way it's always been defined throughout history. If you're, 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 you've discriminated when you make a distinction and then you act upon that distinction. Um, probably all of us, if, you, if we didn't live through it, we know about like the, the, the civil rights movements of the 50s and 60s. And there was a point where discrimination was being made and it was a horrible kind of blot on our history where we were making a distinction based on a person's skin color and then we acted upon that distinction, right? And we, we afforded certain groups of people rights that others didn't. And, and, um, but that's not all discrimination is that way. There's, there's an illicit use of discrimination. That's an example of it. But then there's other times where we use discrimination all day long. <clears throat> what do you do when you got a cough? I don't know. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, one of the realms where we discriminate, all human dis beings discriminate all the time is in the realm of morality. Um, we make distinctions and we act upon those distinctions. I'll give you an example that's pretty simple to see. Um, take a bank robber, for instance, right? Uh, we, we, uh, we make that distinction, it's wrong to rob a bank, and then we act upon that distinction. You get caught robbing a bank, we're going to take your freedom away. So have we just discriminated against that bank robber? Yeah, we did. And 
rightly so. And our whole society and our civil order depends on us making discriminations like that all the time. Uh, all moral laws and moral actions based, are based on some sort of discrimination. So not all discrimination is a bad thing, although it's been used uh, badly in the past. Um, but increasingly for the believer, the, this word has been redefined. And now the new meaning of what it means to discriminate is to make a distinction. If you simply just make a distinction, not act upon that distinction, but just make a distinction, you have set yourself up for the charge of being an intolerant person, a bigoted person, a person that's guilty of discrimination. So you can see how in this shift of our cultures how the redefining of this word to just simply make a distinction has kind of changed and put the believer uh, in a bad spot, so to speak. Um, and like I said, you don't have to look real far to find examples of it. There's uh, photographers that are being sued and losing their businesses because of their stance on same-sex weddings, uh, uh, Christian bakeries, print shop owners who don't want to print something that they find offensive, uh, but other people say, well, you're intolerant if you don't. We're going to take you to court. Uh, a frightening thing is there's uh, some Christian colleges and universities. At first, the IRS was kind of after them, and they've kind of back down, they said that they're choosing not to pursue it right now, but even the organizations that accredit Christian colleges and universities are looking at Christian colleges and universities that have a, in their a public stance on same-sex marriage and a public stance on homosexuality, and they're saying, you need to change that your position on that, or we're going to take away your accreditation. And uh, it's kind of where we're going. Does anybody else sense this or feel this at all? Um, and probably the, a glaring example, I don't know if, if people have heard the story about the, the, the fire chief from the city of Atlanta. Uh, his name is Kelvin Cochran. Anybody else hear this story? He, um, born-again believer, been the fire chief for years and years and years there, and a strong believer. And he just, as part of living out his Christian life, he writes this book um, and it's not what the book was all about, but there's an excerpt in there where he talks about the, the prohibitions that God places on, on human beings in the realm of sexuality. And, and it got out that this man um, disagrees with homosexuality, and that was uh, too much for some people to take. And the mayor of Atlanta, Kasim Reed, uh, you know, suspends him with pay and... Um, they conduct this full-blown investigation and their, their Civil Rights Commission comes back, their investigation is all done, and the report says, we have found that Kelvin Cochran has done nothing wrong. He's made a distinction, but he's never acted upon that distinction. He just he disagrees with the homosexual lifestyle. So that was the finding of the report. And so the mayor takes the find, this report and just kind of lays it aside, and he chooses to fire uh, Kelvin Cochran. And in the press statement when he uh, talks about why he's dismissing this uh, fire chief, he says, and, and listen to his words here carefully, he says, I will not tolerate discrimination of any kind in my administration. Did he discriminate? No. I mean, he made a distinction, yes, but he didn't act upon it, and the Civil Rights Commission came back and said he didn't discriminate against anybody, but you can see that word is being redefined. And now, if you just make that, dis that uh, uh, the distinction, um, you're liable. 
what frightens me the most probably is, I mean, I mean, the earth, it just feels like the ground is moving underneath our feet. And, um, but what frightens me the most is like how quickly all this stuff is happening. You know, it's just like, would any of us have thought 20 or 30 years ago that we'd be sitting there talking about this kind of stuff? It's like our cultures are so rapidly changing. And there's a Christian thinker, a philosopher, some of you guys may have heard of him. His name is um, Francis Schaeffer. And I think it was in the 1960s, Francis Schaeffer said, uh, what was once unthinkable today is thinkable, and tomorrow is commonplace. And I'll say it again. What was once unthinkable today is thinkable, and tomorrow is commonplace. And so the question that we find ourselves in is, as a believer, uh, what do we do? How do we navigate uh, this time. So what I was wanting to do is in an effort to encourage you, we're going to look at some, uh, some, some scripture and we're going to talk about some saints in, Old, Old Testament, or in times past and look at how they faced this kind of really similar challenges that we're in and see how did they, how did they navigate this time? How did they stand up under the, when the pressures of their culture just became too much? And um, but the real truth of the matter, and I, and I just I have to apologize kind of up front, this isn't an easy thing to say um, because it's not a feel-good kind of thing. And, you know, it's like we're not going to all walk out of here saying, boy, I feel great today. Um, it's just, but the, the, the fact of the matter, what I'm saying I think is true. And why do I think that? Because I think Jesus uh, had something to say of this. And there's a passage in the Gospel of John, in uh, John chapter... 15, and uh, I'll read it to you. It's John 15, 18. It says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. So the first and foremost thing by way of encouragement to you is let us not be surprised when the world changes against us. Um, so the first example that we're going to look at is from the Old Testament. It's from the book of Daniel. And it's a really familiar story to us. Again, it's one of those passages that maybe it's so familiar that it loses its weight and its, its uh, uh, maybe impact on us. But just to kind of set the backstory, it's King Nebuchadnezzar, you know, he's on his world dominion uh, parade and he's just conquering culture after culture. And he goes to Jerusalem, conquers it. And it was his custom in those, at that time that he, when he would conquer a people group, he would go through, send people in. He's like, I want you to pick from them the best, the brightest, and I want to take them, and I want to integrate them into my culture and society. So he had the best of all the cultures that he conquered. And a, I mean, I would say it's probably a pretty wise thing to do, really, if you think about it. But in this, so they come, and they, they select the best and the brightest that uh, the Jerusalem had to offer. And part of that group, there was four uh, young men, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, now, those are their Babylonian names. They have Hebrew names, but those are too hard for me to pronounce. And so and those, it's much more familiar, I think, for us to use the Babylonian names. But you have these, um, these young men who are taken and brought to Babylon. And uh, the story goes on. But 
what I, the first to remember is these weren't men, okay? Um, Daniel ends up, you know, rising through the ranks, and he's still in Babylon 70 years later and still serving in the administration. So he, you know, most scholars think that at this time that, that these, these are boys about 14, 15 years old when they're brought to, to Babylon. They're, these, they're not these mature men. Um, but let's look at Daniel chapter 3 and um, look at how they responded when their culture turned against them. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar builds this big golden idol, right? And he, he challenges, charges everybody. Everybody's worshiping this thing. And if you don't, then you're going to lose your life. And word gets out that, hey, these, uh, these Jewish boys, they won't do it. And so he drags them before the court. And he says, I'm going to give you a chance. You guys can bow down and worship this, uh, this golden image that I've made, or I'm going to kill you. And I love uh, their response in Daniel chapter 3, verse 16. And again, remembering, these are 14, 15-year-old boys. It says in uh, chapter 3, verse 16, it says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So they, I mean, they didn't know what was going to happen. I mean, they were hopeful, right? That God was going to save them, and they, it was. But as far as they knew, they were going to this making this decision was going to cost them their life. And I have to believe that you know, as they were bound and thrown into the furnace, they still don't know. And so they think this stand that I'm making has just cost us our life. But for them, they knew who they served. And for them, it would be better to die than to make this compromise and bow down to this golden idol. And for these young boys to have the strength and the courage of their convictions, it's quite amazing, I think. Um, so now we're going to move forward a little bit. Um, we're going to move from the Old Testament period to... I'm going to call it the New Testament period. It's, it's uh, in about 150 or so, 156 A.D. as a matter of fact. And we're going to read an excerpt from a, an old uh, church father. His name was Polycarp. And Polycarp was, uh, uh, you had Jesus, and then Jesus taught John, the Apostle John. And then Polycarp was a disciple, you could say, of the Apostle John. And so... You know, Polycarp was, you know, for years and years sat under John, uh, the Apostle John. And um, there's, a, there's a record of when Polycarp was martyred. Um, and in fact, uh, outside of the book of Acts, when we have the record of Stephen, remember in Acts, when he got martyred, the, the record of Polycarp's martyrdom is the oldest uh, record of a martyrdom outside of the Bible that we have. Um, and so, but this record is contained in, the, in a writing. It's called the Martyrdom of Polycarp, and I want to set it up for you just a little bit. He's 86 years old at this time. He's the bishop of the Church of Smyrna, and um, it was kind of the height of 
the persecution that Christians were undergoing under Rome, right? Being fed to the lions and burned at the stake and all this. So it was just a heavy, heavy time to be a faithful Christian. And uh, when the Romans would arrest Christians, the charge that they would bring against them, and it's kind of ironic when you think about it, but they would be charged with being an atheist. And the reason that the Romans would bring this charge against them is because they would refuse to worship the... the you know, Rome was a polytheistic culture. They had you know, all these gods that they worshipped, Jupiter and you know, all these things, and the Christians refused. They would not worship. And, and they said, well, we worship the one true God. And so they were char the crime that they were charged and ultimately convicted for is they were charged with being an atheist. And um, so uh, in 156 AD, Polycarp is arrested. And I'm going to just read you a quick excerpt from the martyrdom of Polycarp. And it says, it says, when Polycarp was brought before him, the proconsul asked if he were Polycarp. And when he confessed that he was, the proconsul tried to persuade him to recant, saying, have respect for your age and other such things as they're accustomed to say. Swear by the genius of Caesar. Repent. Say away with the atheists. Basically saying, if you join us, we're going to let you go. If you, if you can say away with the atheists as well. So Polycarp solemnly looked at the whole crowd of lawless heathen who were with him in the stadium. And he motioned toward them with his hand. And then groaning as he looked up to heaven, he said, Away with the atheists. But when the magistrate persisted and said, Swear the oath and I will release you, revile Christ. Polycarp replied, for 86 years I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How can, you how can I blaspheme my king who saved me? But as he continued to insist, saying, Swear by the genius of Caesar, Polycarp answered, If you vainly suppose that I will swear by the genius of Caesar as you request and pretend not to know who I am, listen carefully. I am a Christian. Now that's not the end of the account and it goes on and eventually later that day Polycarp is burned at the stake um, because he refused to make that compromise. The, the compromise that the culture was demanding that he make. And he said, listen carefully. If you don't get anything else from all that I've said, just do know this. I am a Christian and I will not compromise. So we're going to jump further into the future and look at another saint who just decades ago laid down his life in following his beliefs. And it's the account of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And probably a lot of you are familiar with a lot of his writings. He's just a tremendous uh, believer in a difficult, difficult time. And... Um, he was just 27 years old. He was a Lutheran pastor in Germany and was just there when the, the, the Third Reich and the Nazi Party kind of comes to power. And what was kind of going on at that time is, remember, Germany just suffered like a horrible, horrible defeat in World War I. And the, the whole country was just absolutely devastated. 
And there was this growing movement as time went on that the German people just kind of wanted a restoration of who they were, their cultural identity, their cultural strength, and all that sort of stuff. And then the Nazi party comes along and says, hey, we're going to give you all that stuff. And so the Nazis just rose to power on this tremendous wave. And, but the thing is, is like nobody knew at that time, early on, what the Nazi party was ultimately going to do. At this time, they really hadn't kind of played their hand or showed their, tipped their cards or anything. People were just kind of caught up in this wave of nationalism. It's like, and they were thinking, you know, uh, we want a strong Germany again. And so the, the Nazi party was brought to power. And one of the first things that they, that they did was they passed a, a law and on April, 17, April 7th, 1933, they passed this law. It was called the Law of the Reconstruction of Professional Civil Service. And it basically was just a dictate. It's like, hey, now that we're in, par, in power, this is how the government's going to run. And there was a clause that was put in there. It was, called, it was the third clause of this law. And it's kind of infamously become known as the Aryan Paragraph because and it was just a simple little blurb. It says, hey, if you're going to work for the German government, you ha you know... You have to be Aryan to work for the German government. You have to be a German, basically. Or more specifically, you can't be a Jew. And so that presented a problem because at that time there was lots of Jews that you know served all over the place. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he saw this and he understood the problem that this presented. Um, because he saw that ultimately this Aryan paragraph would exclude every ethnically Jewish Christian from the community of God because part of the problem was that the German church was a government church and you were paid by the German government, all this sort of stuff. And so now the church is faced with this issue. If we have a German, or I'm sorry, a Jewish pastor, all this sort of thing, we have to fire them. Now the church at that time uh, was faced with a, a dilemma and it was just like we can either stand against this and come what may, or we can, we can go along with it. And the thinking predominantly within the church in Germany at that time was like, let's just go along with it. Uh, I mean, the Jewish people, yes, but they can still form their own little congregations, and they can have a Jewish congregation and a Jewish pastor. So it's like, it's no harm to the Jewish Christians, and it'd be better for us as a church if we were on the inside of the Nazi party as opposed to the outside of it. So, so is this compromise, is, it's not that really that big of a deal, and there may be strategically, there may, it may be good for us to just kind of to go along with it. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he saw it, and it was, it was a problem. Because he said... He says, I read my Bible and I read Galatians 3.28 and it says that there's neither Jew nor Greek but all are one in Christ. And he read Paul again in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It says that all are baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek. And he says, uh, there's a problem with this. All of this I'm telling you about comes from a biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer called the Bonhoeffer Pastor, Martyr, Prophet, and Spy. He goes on to talk about the Arian paragraph, and he says the Arian paragraph contradicts the clear meaning of the scriptures. And he saw that ultimately, if he were to affirm it, it would put the church under de facto German government rule. Um, and he says that when that happens, when alien principles rule the church, the church ceases to be the church. And he said, a church that excludes Jews is no church at all. 
and he wouldn't support it. He eventually went on to write, he said, we must shake off our fear of this world. The cause of Christ is at stake and are we to be found sleeping? And so his stand against that Aryan paragraph, as minuscule as it seemed at the moment, forced him to, be, to go underground. He eventually started up and was one of the leaders of the, what was called the Confess, Confessing Church, was this underground church in Germany at that time, and eventually was arrested and eventually was hung to death shortly before uh, the uh, World War II ended. It cost him his life. But he, like Daniels and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and like Polycarp, Bonhoeffer, saw that there was a compromise that we cannot make. Um, and like I said, when I kind of came up here at first, my, my intent was not to be bring like this heavy message, although there's a certain aspect I think is kind of unavoidable, but I wanted to be an encouragement to you um, but maybe not in the way that you are thinking. What I want to do is I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to do something that needs to be done, and it needs to be done now, and that thing is this, that we need to get set as believers in God. We need to get set in our minds right now that faithfulness to Christ may come to us at a cost, that the time, the time may come when it costs us true things, real things, to be faithful to the gospel of Jesus. We have to get that settled in our minds now because in the heat of a moment, in a pressure, in, in a pressure cooker moment, it's real hard to make good, sound decisions. But if we can get that settled in our mind now, we're so much better off. Um, Today, you know, our culture has kind of drawn this line in the sand and, and the line that they're asking us to cross over is on the realm of homosexuality and same-sex marriage. And it really kind of annoys me a little bit because the way it seems like our culture portrays Christians, or at least faithful biblical Christians, it portrays us as to be a Christian is to be anti-homosexual and is to be anti-same-sex marriage. And like I said does the Bible speak to all those things? Absolutely. And do those principles and dictates guide us? Absolutely. But do I want to say, what does it mean? If I were to say, what does it mean to be a Christian? Do I want to say, I'm anti-gay? It's like, well, no, I'm for Jesus. You know, it's just like all these things. It's like it's such a, such a distortion of what it means to be a Christian. Um, but today that line, like I said, is same-sex marriage. Today that line is... is uh, homosexuality, but what about tomorrow? Because remember, we're talking about where we are in our culture, the shift that things have, uh, that have made. And uh, you know, we said earlier, it's like, who would have thought you know, 20, 30 years ago we'd be talking about these things? But remember, our culture, the supreme thing is tolerance, right? It's just like accepting of everything. So is it really that far-fetched to maybe think that a day will come when to say that, Jesus is the only way is deemed something that's intolerant, that, uh, you know, that's deemed something that's offensive. Um, yeah, yeah, you guys can say that Jesus is a way, but it's kind of intolerant of you guys to say that Jesus is the only way. And that, for us friends, has got to be the line that we will never cross, even if it costs us perhaps even our lives. 
um, it's not if you you know if you do a survey of Christian history, you can see that everywhere that Christians have stood in opposition to their culture, they paid heavy, heavy prices. Um, if you're a Christian and you stand in opposition to where your culture and your society is, you can expect to pay uh, a heavy, heavy price. And again, you know, we go back to the words of Jesus and he says, what else were you expecting? You know, this, they did it to me. And why would you expect it any different for yourselves? Um, but one thing that I'm grateful for is that that's not all the Bible says, right? It doesn't always just say, hey, become a Christian, sign up for instant persecution. Although it does say you can expect to be persecuted, right? I mean, just read First Peter. If you don't, if you don't understand what's in store, that persecution is, in, is part and parcel of Christianity, read First Peter. You will suffer persecution. Um, but it's not all that it has to say. Um, I love, one of the passages that brings me comfort is, is uh, Hebrews, from the book of Hebrews, and it's Hebrews chapter 13, um, verses 1 through 6. And I'll read it to you. It says, it says, Let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember them that are in bonds, as if you're bound with them, and when they su remember those that suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. Marriage is honorable in all, in the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear. What shall man do to me? But we go back to the passage that we started with in Ephesians chapter 16, and Paul tells us, he's like, all right, but kids, buckle up. Here we go. Here's what you do. Put on this armor. But once the armor's on, what do we do? What's our, what's our task? We have to stand. How do we do that? Do we do it offensively? Um, as some people in the body of Christ do? I don't think so. I don't think that's how we're supposed to conduct ourselves. You know, if, if you're looking for guidance on this, I would point you to Romans chapter 12. It has a whole litany of the ways that we are supposed to conduct ourselves in a culture that's uh, hostile to us. But it's a, one of the things it tells us is uh, when we're making the stand is that we're to live peaceably among all men, right? Um, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, Paul again is talking and he says that, that we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. And when you think about that analogy that he's using, the analogy of an ambassador, what, is a, what does an ambassador do, right? Well, an ambassador is sent from his home country, right? And he's sent to represent the king that he, or kingdom that he's representing. And he goes to this hostile, not necessarily hostile, but to a foreign land anyways. And uh, his job is to represent and bring the message that the king that sent him wants him to convey. 
And Paul's saying, guess what? That's what you guys are. You're in a foreign land. You are my ambassadors. And I have a message that I want you to convey. Sometimes the culture accepted it readily. Other times they didn't. You go back to Roman times and Christians were labeled as atheists for bringing this message. Um, but we still have to bring the message. Um, we represent our king. We do it with diplomacy. We do it with grace. But we still must carry that message. And we go back to what Jesus says uh, in John chapter 14. He says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through me. And that may become an, uh, an intolerant message at some point in our future. But we can't do anything about it because it's true, right? Uh, how do we know that it's true? Well, one of the ways that we know that it's true is Jesus did something that nobody else had ever done before uh, to validate his point, and he rose from the dead. And there's a lot of meaning behind the resurrection of Jesus. Um, I love Easter. It's probably the best day in the world, I think. <laughs> Because just, I mean, and if you if you just grab your mind or what happened on Easter Sundays, like the the tomb's empty. It's still empty. It blows my mind. Um, but one of the reasons that it should be blowing our minds is that Jesus points to his resurrection and say, "This is how you know the message that I'm giving you is true." As I'm raising, I'm raised from the dead, so that you, all the things that I said to you in the past, you know, is true. Muhammad didn't raise, you know, he just, he has his teachings and he died and that's it. But Jesus did something that was so audacious that no one else has ever done it. He rose from the dead so that we can know when he says that I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father except through me, that we, he is speaking a true thing. And so as ambassadors, we bring that message we stand, we put on our armor. But as Paul says further in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, when he's talking about our job as being ambassadors, he goes on to say, I implore you, be reconciled to God. Jesus, His cross, it is for believer and non-believer alike, it is the only hope that mankind has. And so I want to stand before you and echo what Paul said when he said to the Corinthians, I implore you, be reconciled to God. Thanks.